The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Stocks are firmly in the green and yields are at multi-year highs. The most important hour of trading starts now. Welcome to Closing Bell, everyone. I'm Sarah Eisen. Here's where we stand in the market. Rising again, the S&P higher for the fifth time in the last six sessions and up a full percent as we go into the close. The Dow is off-session highs but still up a healthy more than 200 points. The Nasdaq is doing the best of the big three, up 2% right now. Technology and consumer discretionary in the lead. Small caps also coming back up more than 1%. We're higher for the month of March. And we are building on last week's big win streak. Here are my top takeaways on the biggest stories today. Nike jumping. You will hear analysts talk about China, supply chain improvement, pricing power, all true. But one thing to pay attention to that nobody's talking about yet, Nike's new virtual strategy. In the call last night, CEO John Donahoe announced Nike Virtual Studios to build Web3 products and experiences and to scale it. Nike acquired a startup artifact, launched its first NFT this quarter, Reminder, Nike was out of the pack on digital, so watch this space. A lot of companies did well during the pandemic and into this year because of lockdowns, work from home, virtual school, and consumer staples especially. But that trade is not working anymore as the pandemic fades and life returns. Truist says it's time to buy P&G, Procter & Gamble, above the rest because it actually emerged stronger from the pandemic and is ready to separate from the pack that just got a temporary lift from pandemic trends. And why are stocks rising and bond yields shoot up? Usually, this kind of rate move spooks stocks, especially technology. One theory, Fed credibility is bullish for the market. Fed Chair Powell's pivot and tough talking on inflation this week restores cred to a central bank that was behind on the inflation fight. As Ironside's Barry Knapp said in a note today, it's bullish for the asset class that benefits from capital formation, productivity, and real growth, namely equities. Let's get straight to our top story. The signal from the bond market yields on the shorter end of Treasuries jumping to multi-year highs. It's happening faster than longer-term yields, fueling a big debate about whether the bond market is about to signal a recession. Joining us is the National Economic Council Director, Brian Deese, from the White House. Brian, it's great to have you back on the show. Welcome. Happy to be here. So you're an economist. You follow the yield curve. Fed Chair Powell played it down yesterday. Are you worried about recession signals? Well, when we look at the strength of the economy, we try to look at indicators across the board. And I think one of the striking uh, things about the economy right now is the resilience uh, of the American consumer uh, and demand. Uh, we're seeing that in data over the course of the month. And so we continue to believe that we've got a, a resilient economy with a very strong labor market and with a consumer that is continuing to sustain and has continued to sustain through a number of uh, shocks and changes as we've come through this recovery. So that's our assessment uh, as we sit today. Obviously, there are risks and uncertainties looking forward, but uh, the strength of this recovery is quite notable. Uh, and so uh, we, you know, we believe and expect that that will continue. Strong enough to handle seven, maybe eight interest rate hikes this year. That's what the market's starting to price in. Well, look, we have had a historically strong economic recovery. Uh, the economic growth that we've seen is the strongest in 40 years. The labor market performance is the strongest that we've seen ever in a modern 
economic recovery. And we've seen that through a number of unexpected twists and turns, including uh, the pandemic and the Delta variant, the Omicron variant, some of the supply chain challenges. And obviously, we continue to have real challenges on the supply side of this economy and with elevated inflation. Uh, but we think that the most notable issue right now is the resilience of the American economy. And I would note unique among advanced economies in the world. The president's heading to Europe uh, later this week, and the American economy stands out for that resilience as well. But the inflation picture has changed and, and it's gotten worse. I know you met with CEOs yesterday, Brian. What did you hear from them and what did you tell them about what you're expecting now as far as how long inflation is going to last, especially with this new shock we're seeing in food and energy prices? Well, we had an important meeting with CEOs from sectors across the economy yesterday. The principal focus was on the war in Ukraine, uh, both in terms of giving them an operational update on facts on the ground and our sanctions and export control efforts, uh, to thank them for the work that they're doing in partnership with the government to uh, effectuate those sanctions and for a number of com companies to take individual steps as well, and then to talk through the outlook and the uh, resulting impact on the global economy and the American economy. Uh, the good news is that the sanctions package and the uh, the impact is being principally felt by the Russian economy, and we are taking steps to mitigate wherever we can the impact on the European economy and the American economy. Uh, but there will be impacts. Certainly that's true in energy markets and gas mar uh, prices as well. So we talked about the ways in which we can continue to work together to maintain this crushing blow on the Russian economy while mitigating the impact here at home. There was also discussion of cyber threats, and President Biden warned the CEOs that there's evolving evidence that Russia is considering launching cyber attacks, that they have a patriotic duty to step up spending on their defense. What more can you tell us about which industries or sectors might be most vulnerable? Well, I can tell you this. The president made a very clear call on the corporate community to do everything they can to, harbin, harbor, uh, to harden their cyber defenses for critical infrastructure, which in the United States is operated principally by private actors. This is not an issue that we come to recently. We've been working for months with the private sector around how to encourage them to take steps to harden their own defenses. But it is made acute right now because the Russian government has these capabilities. It signaled its intention uh, to use them uh, to react to and to respond to the sanctions package that we have put in place. And so everybody needs to be vigilant and on a high state of alert. And one of the things the president underscored is that for many of these companies that operate critical infrastructure, this is not just about the benefit of their shareholders and their stakeholders, that the benefit of the broader American public and the broader economy is on the line. And so therefore, it's important that we all do everything we possibly can at this moment. I can't tell you when exactly Russia may act or on what sectors. But what the president well, made very clear is that yet? risk is real. Is there we any evidence not, that it started? We have not seen uh, any evidence of, of wide scale or very targeted efforts at U.S. firms. Uh, we have seen some activity in Ukraine that has spilled over and has had some impact on European and in some cases American companies. So, but the fact that we have not seen it yet uh, should be uh, a reason for vigilance and for action, not complacency, that this, is, this threat is real. And that was the, the, what the president tried to underscore. A lot of partnership between the federal government and the private sector is going on. That's a good thing. But everybody needs to mm -hmm. step this up and be on a high state of vigilance. Those cyber stocks flying today. Brian Deese, thank you for joining us with an update from the White House.
on that Thanks, meeting. Sir. After the break, a slew of airlines have come out with bullish demand forecasts. But what about the cruise lines? We'll ask Carnival CEO Arnold Donald about what he's seeing from customers. Next, you're watching Closing Bell on CNBC. Dow's up about 225. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Carnival out with earnings today, reporting a miss on both the top and bottom lines for the first quarter, citing a temporary slowdown in bookings due to the Omicron variant. Joining us now for Closing Bell exclusive is Arnold Donald, CEO of Carnival Corporation. Welcome back, Arnold. Nice to see you. Hey, good to see you, Sarah. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So the miss was blamed on Omicron, and and now you're talking about very strong booking volumes that you're seeing. What's driving that? Is Is it simply getting out of a pandemic phase? Talk a little more about what you're seeing. Oh, no, absolutely. We um, have about 75% of our ships as of March um, sailing again, which is fantastic. Um, we've seen unbelievable strength in bookings um, in our Carnival brand. Uh, the past three weeks are wave season type bookings, so extraordinary bookings at higher pricing. Uh, so we have a lot of momentum going. Um, of course, we've had to change some itineraries um, over in Europe. Um, and so I would like to take a moment now to say, uh, along with everyone else, we stand for peace. We have thousands of employees um, from the Ukraine and um, uh, from Ukraine and, and from from Russia. And um, our heart just goes out to everyone who is being directly impacted, who loved ones are being impacted. But even with those sailings, while we've had to pull out of Russia, um, we've been able to replace it with itineraries going to different places in Sweden and Latvia and Nor- uh, Norway and Denmark. Uh, so uh, things are, are really positive from a demand front and from a booking front looking forward. Even in the international cruises, is, is that where people want to go right now? Because what we hear from the airlines and hotels is that there's this boom, but it's largely domestic. Well, keep in mind that we're a global company. We have nine world leading cruise line brands and, and they sail in home port all over the world. So we source a lot within Europe. And, of course, Europeans, many of them still want a vacation. Uh, and so those brands are, 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 are seeing, you know, good booking strength and good onboard yields when people are on board, um, as are our North American brands. Um, so, yeah, you see pockets of where people may have some sensitivity to specific itineraries or specific locations. But overall, North America and Europe, as we said in our business update today, uh, we have good booking momentum at strong pricing. 
So on pricing, fuel is definitely going to hurt. Hurts the airlines, certainly hurt, hurts you guys. How, how much of a damper does that put on the financial recovery that you expect? And, and how can you offset that? Are you raising prices? Well, what we do, first of all, is manage consumption. And we've done a good job of that. So we've had a 30% reduction in unit fuel consumption um, uh, since, um, you know, uh, 2000, mid-2000s. And we've done very well with that. We have um, additional opportunity uh, for uh, reduction in consumption, both because we have 25% of our ships will be new ships once we um, back at 100%. Uh, we took out less efficient ships, about 22 of them. Plus, we have many initiatives on board our ships for a better fuel efficiency, from itinerary planning to fine-tuning um, the engines to using different lighting, conservation um, on board of, of um, water as well as, as food waste and so on. Uh, so we have, uh, first and foremost, for us is consumption. Fuel prices go up. They come down. This happened through time. We've suffered through fuel spikes before. And we'll see how long, you know, this one persists. And if it does, then we'll take a look at, at other um, actions to take um, if, if that needs to be, proves to be necessary. When, Arnold, does your, do you feel like you'll be back to normal as an industry as far as demand, <laughs> capacity, service? I mean, there's just so much coming at yeah, you. I, I know you got the, the level lowered by the CDC, which was probably good news for you. Yeah, the, when do you go back to normal? Yeah, the, you know, the world is... Um, always not normal. And so for us, when are we going to see a return 100% of our fleet and, and EBITDA greater than what we had in 2019, et cetera? You know, right now we're looking at positive EBITDA in the third quarter is, is what we're looking at, you know, for the third quarter. Uh, and so in 23, uh, we're optimistic we'll have the full fleet sailing. Uh, we already have 40 sailings already uh, now that are 100% occupancy. Uh, and so we see that as an additional indication of strong momentum. Um, so we have to see what happens around the world because, you know, you never know. But based on um, the trends today and the demands today, you know, we're optimistic in 23, we can um, return to seeing 100 percent of our fleet sailing at the occupancy levels and at stronger pricing. But almost 30 percent of Americans are not double vaccinated. Arnold, doesn't that represent ultimately a challenge if you are doing these 95 percent vaccinated cruises in terms of demand? Well, Sarah, the way um, things have worked out for us, and we work very hard with medical experts and scientists around the world. Uh, in fact, the incidence of um, COVID cases is lower, consistently lower on board the ships than they are, you know, shoreside, than they are in, in land communities. Uh, we've uh, been very diligent with testing, um, with vaccinating our crew. Right. And, but you and have to be vaccinated, right? To uh, get on? Right now, you have to be 95% vaccinated in the U.S. Uh, so we are, for example, children under five are, are not counted against that. And then we do have, you know, some exceptions for other reasons. Um, so at this point in time, but we'll see how that plays out over time as the world has become increasingly vaccinated and as the virus has had variants that have not created hospitalizations to the same degree or worse, uh, then, you know, it becomes something that we learn to live with. It becomes an endemic versus a pandemic. And so we'll see if that trend continues. You know, the variant B uh, that mm -hmm. people are experiencing around the world, again, while people have it, they don't seem to be as sick. Of course, we have better treatments now. A lot of people are vaccinated. All of that contributes to that. And as society moves forward and learns to live with the virus, 
uh, then things are uh, returned to more normal. And that's the trend we see now, and, and people are having a great time on board. They're, they're spending more money than ever, but more importantly than that, they're creating those joyful memories and moments, um, which is why they cruise in the first place. And it's going very well and has been for some time. Good to hear. Arnold Donald, thank you for the update. Thank you, Sarah. CEO of Carnival. After the break, the flattening yield curve leading to some questions about whether recession is looming. But Mike Santoli takes a different indicator that could ease some of those fears. He takes a look in the dashboard next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. NASDAQ up 2% as we head into the close. Technology and banks are what's leading this rally today. You're seeing it in the big cap tech, the chips. Uh, up just near session highs. There's the Nasdaq up 2%, the S&P up 1%. The Treasury yield curve continues to flatten, though, today, sparking some fears of a looming recession. Brian Deese from the White House isn't worried about it, and neither is Mike Santoli, who is looking at one other indicator of a potential recession. Yes. That's not so bleak. The index of leading economic indicators, it's a composite. It's not just a single source. Now, the Fed, the New York Fed, has a yield curve-based recession prediction model. It's one component. It's the three-month Treasury yield versus the 10-year. Three-month tenure, not two-year tenure. This is a composite of things which over a long span of time, as you can see, goes back over 60 years, has almost always rolled over before this shaded area, which is recession. Not always too far in advance, but you see there's almost no recessions that have not had this really degrade a little bit before you get into recession. However, 2020, there's a difference, right? That wasn't a normal recession. That was the economy forcibly stopped. So it's still pointing higher. It was actually higher in February versus January. January dipped a little bit. So this is at least a slight reassurance that even if things are slowing down, even if the risks are rising, we're not on the precipice most likely of a domestic and recession. What, and we were just talking about what goes into it. It's a number of indicators a, yeah. compiled into one. The market. I do know stock market is included in there. And I believe there's some employment stuff in there, some manufacturing stuff, maybe credit markets as well. So um, you know, it's a blend. It maybe isn't perfect, but I do think there's some reassurance from people who are screaming about the 210 years. Pushback spread. against yeah. all that negativity. Well, don't look now, but meme stock mania is back. GameStop and AMC soaring right now. Up next, we'll get reaction from Interactive Brokers Chairman Thomas Petterfee. His thoughts on the state of the retail investor when we come back.
Check out shares of GameStop up 25% today. Other meme stocks higher as well. AMC is up 14%. BlackBerry, Bed Bath & Beyond also outpacing the market. Joining us now is Interactive Brokers Chairman Thomas Petterfee. Thomas, it's great to have you. I, I know that you you sometimes overlap with, with the Robin Hood set, right? But you, you claim that you have a little more sophisticated investor. What, what, is the, what does this kind of action in these stocks tell you about where retail traders are right now? Well, I, I don't think this is a good situation for retail traders because in the fullness of time, these stocks are very likely going to go to zero, right? So somebody is going to end up holding them at the time when they really go to zero. So I'm, I'm, I hope that not many of my customers Interactive brokers customers are not in these stocks. What are you seeing from the interactive brokers customers in terms of participation and, and appetite for stocks right now after pretty brutal start to the year, but a nice little bounce here yeah. in the last week and a half? Yeah. yeah, so so interestingly enough, our customers, interactive brokers customers are not participating in this latest rally. In spite of the fact that uh, the IBKR offers margins as low as as 1.83% uh, to all the way down to 0.83%. Our customers' margin loans have decreased by about $8.5 billion, or roughly yeah. 17% to the in the current quarter. Similarly, free cash deposits have increased by 7% to $95 billion. So most IBKR customers do not seem to believe the current rally. And I think that there'll be, or they think that there'll be a better opportunity later to get back into the market. So pretty defensive posture there. Is that, that yes. what you, you would say? What about yes. overall just activity? As far as, you know, stimulus checks have, have faded and, and Fed is tightening interest rates. What about yes. just retailers retail investors embrace of the markets at all so so our average customer has about two hundred thousand dollars so th these are more sophisticated customers than people who are um, ba basing their investments on on uh, relief checks what about technology in particular what have you seen as far as inflows and outflows and that that once beloved part of the market that has been most vulnerable to what's changed here? So I, I think they are all worried about the, the Fed hikes, right? And uh, although I don't think that the Fed uh, will be able to raise rates high enough to stop inflation, uh, I, I think that this is because uh, they they don't want to be appear they don't want to appear to to be starting a recession right before midterm elections. Uh, second, they are the, the higher they raise the rates, the higher interest rate payments will become uh, on the on the freshly issued debt that will contribute to the nation's indebtedness. I, I think Treasury made a big mistake in in not refinancing at much lower rates while they're very mm. available. And th this situation is further aggravated by the very high level of borrowings in the $11 trillion private equity space, where managers have been trading companies among each other at ever higher prices loaded with more and more debt. 
that worked just fine with well interest rates were zero, but they will not work at three point five percent. So I think we'll see a, a lot of bankruptcies in this space. No, I know. I know you've been warning of that and, and worried about it. What about your own results, Thomas? Do, do higher interest rates, net net, help your earnings or hurt well, of because course, of, of what I, you just I, described? I just said that we're sitting on ninety-five billion dollars of customer cash, so obviously higher interest rates are going to be helpful. Yeah. Thomas Petterfi, appreciate you joining us. Thank you Thank very you. much. Always good to get an update. Here's where we stand in the markets right now. Going strong here into the close. The Dow's up 240 points. Technology is in the lead. As I mentioned, Nasdaq been hit harder than the rest this year. It's up 2% and having a bigger rebound. The S&P up 1%. Small caps up a percent as well. Up next, venture capitalist and crypto investor Katie Hahn on whether private crypto company valuations are starting to look expensive. What's Wall Street buzzing about today? Venture capitalist and crypto investor Katie Hahn. After leaving her high-profile role at Andreessen Horowitz last year, Hahn now breaking records with her $1.5 billion debut fund. Kate Rooney exclusively sat down with Hahn in her first interview after leaving Andreessen. Kate, tell us more. Hey, Sarah. Yeah, this is the largest debut venture capital fund ever by a female founder and the biggest debut crypto fund, according to PitchBook. Han Ventures is going to be split into two parts. It's $500 million for early stage investments and a billion dollars for the later stage growth side. Han led and co-led Andreessen Horowitz's uh, multi-billion dollar crypto funds before leaving the firm in December. She was an early investor in Coinbase and sits on that company's board. She says a smaller team will help her be more nimble. Han also tells me Bitcoin prices and publicly traded crypto companies getting hit is not spilling over to private startups quite yet. We're still seeing very high valuations in the crypto space. I will say, though, that some of those high valuations, you know, um, some of those companies are actually profitable uh, and have metrics that you can go look at. And so I think it's important that we don't treat crypto and Web3 as a monolith because they really are very different in terms of uh, what problem they're tackling and different projects out there. Han has invested through multiple bear markets, sometimes called crypto winters, and says that's when some of the best companies are built. And as far as where the opportunities are, she mentions blockchain gaming and identity verification. Sarah. We will watch it. Kate, thank you. Kate Rooney on the buzz. When we come back, NVIDIA unveiling a new chip aimed at speeding up AI computing. And Tesla cuts the ribbon at its German gigafactory and soars to the top of the S&P 500. Those stories and more when we take you inside the market zone. minutes left of trading. We are now in the closing bell market zone. CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli here to break down these crucial moments of the trading day. Plus Needham's Raji Gill on NVIDIA's new product announcements, what it means for the stock. Ken Accord's Jed Dorsheimer on Tesla beginning deliveries at its gigafactory in Germany. First up, though, on the broader markets, stocks are rebounding again after yesterday's big sell off. The major averages are near session highs. Dow's up 250. Nasdaq now past 2 percent or so. Mike, and what stands out today is that Treasury yields are really jumping. We're seeing fresh multi-year highs on the two-year, on the 10-year. They're at 238%. Usually, that would spook equity investors a little bit, especially in technology, right? You worry about the effect of higher interest rates on, on the economy and about on, on longer-duration assets. 
What does today's action tell you? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Treasuries were in the wrong spot for a fast-tracked Fed tightening program that they're now talking about. So there's no doubt about that. The question was how rapidly the market itself might adjust. What's interesting is we're now up to levels of yield that Treasuries have not spent a lot of time above over the last, let's say, eight years. I mean, you know, 2.4 percent on the, uh, you know, on the 10-year. Yes, in times in 2019 and a little bit before that, you did get above that in 2017. But not a not a lot of time. So we don't necessarily have uh, a stock market that's been, you know, stress tested for that level. I don't think there's anything magic about these particular thresholds. But it is interesting when it comes to tech. I mean, look, we had a 20 percent pullback in the Nasdaq. The relative performance of the Nasdaq 100 to the S&P hit a new two year low basically a week ago. So all we're doing is doing some catch up here. The duration, you know, discount back at a certain rate, the earnings of long term assets. That story is a small piece of the valuation puzzle. It's not relevant right now. Final point, if we're slowing down, you go for the stocks that can grow their earnings, which are growth stocks. Growth stocks, true, which is working today. NASDAQ's still about 13% off the highs. S&P, Mike, wanted to also note, because we did pass 4,500 for the first time today since February. Give us your the the Santoli big pick on, on just where we are this move after last week's big rebound and now some follow through today. Yeah, a lot of folks focused on an area about, let's say, 2% up from here, just under 4,600. If you look at that chart there, there's basically twice in February, uh, that's where the index peaked out. And even when we were at the lows, a lot of folks were saying, hey, if we, even if we bounce from here, we're probably in a range that goes from you know 4,200 to 4,600. So we may be relatively close to testing that proposition. Uh, like I said, 1% or 2% up from here, and you'll be just about at the doorstep step of it. Up 1.2% right now. NVIDIA announcing several new products at today's Investor Day, focusing on AI enterprise products and teasing plans to build what it says will be the world's fastest supercomputer. Shares are down today, but have gained about 20% since last Monday. Let's bring in Needham analyst Raji Gill. Raji, welcome. What do you think were the biggest takeaways for investors today? Well, well, this was uh, probably one of the most comprehensive, the most compelling um, analyst days uh, I've witnessed uh, for NVIDIA, and I've been covering NVIDIA for well over a decade. Uh, there, are, there are a couple of kind of major things that were, were quite exciting. I think number one was their, their new uh, GPU. It was the Hopper H100 uh, processor. That has, this has 80 billion transistors. It's six times the performance of the previous um, Ampere architecture that was introduced uh, two years ago. And, and one of the interesting stats that, that Jensen Wong, the CEO, mentioned, if you have 20 of these H100s, it can basically power the whole world's uh, Internet traffic. That's how powerful um, and computational um, uh, this, this new chip is. So this chip basically is going to enable um, the adoption of, of more advanced machine learning and, advanced, and artificial intelligence into enterprises, whether that's deep recommender systems, genomic se- sequencing, um, uh, natural language understanding. Uh, so it, because of the, the raw speed, it will enable that uh, level of processing. I think the second thing that was, that, that was very interesting and I think speaks to the longer-term potential of, of NVIDIA as a software opportunity, they outlined about a $300 billion TAM just in software. They're building a long-term subscription software model um, by licensing their software to enterprise servers, right. also to, uh, to the Omniverse. And this has been one of your themes, NVIDIA into a software company. I'm just curious, why, is the stock, why do you think the stock is lower today on the back of some of these, as you're describing, pretty bullish announcements? 
Yeah, I mean, the stock uh, had, as you mentioned, rallied, you know, 20 percent, you know, heading into the into this analyst day. Um, there there might have been an expectation that the CFO uh, would have raised the near term outlook. Um, but to me, this is just kind of near term kind of trading. Uh, the bigger picture is uh, the revenue growth, the earnings growth and the the TAM, the total adjustable market that's a, a available for for NVIDIA. And if you look at NVIDIA, NVIDIA has been growing about 200 uh, percent over the last four years. It's grown earnings, net income, 300 percent over the last four years. It, it's one of the most pristine um, financial uh, companies, not only in semiconductors, but of all of technology. Um, and so, the the TAMs are, are enormous, $1 trillion TAM. That's available. So are you changing your numbers on, on this? It's, it's still about 24% off the highs for NVIDIA. Are you changing your numbers, the valuation on the back of what you heard today? I have a street high price target of $400. The $400 equates to $1 trillion market cap company. This would be the first $1 trillion semiconductor uh, company. That only is about 50 times next year's earnings. So I have them doing about $8 of earnings and, and the multiple expanding back to 50 times. It, it, at one point, uh, NVIDIA was trading at 60 times. The multiple is compressed to 35 times. But um, if you look at other tech companies like Tesla or, or software companies that basically either have no earnings or a fraction of the earnings, they're trading at well above 50 times already. So 50x times, times eight, you know, seven to eight dollars of EPS is not um, that um, um, far-fetched. And I think yeah. ultimately we'll get to it. And just really quickly, Raji, any implications for any of NVIDIA's competitors or maybe its suppliers? I, I think this is um, it, there really is no competitive implication except maybe uh, perhaps to, to, to Intel. Um, but essentially, uh, NVIDIA has been at the forefront of, of pushing artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, into the enterprise, into the hyperscalers, into vertical industries. This is a secular kind of theme. This is not going to slow down. And then the the, uh, the ultimate kind of move to 3D virtual worlds through the omniverse, uh, virtualizing phys- physical worlds, whether it's you know designing skyscrapers or designing buildings and doing that in the virtual world, enabled by NVIDIA software. This is again a completely new market that um, NVIDIA is is leading. So it, it's 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 not really relevant to look at the competitive landscape. It, it's really more relevant to look at where the revenue growth is now and, and can it grow into these massive TAMs um, that, are, that are available to the company. A lot of people watching TSMC as well, longtime supplier uh, for Intel. Raji, thank you for joining us. Raji Gill on NVIDIA. Shares of Alibaba surging today up 11% after the Chinese e-commerce giant said it would increase the size of its share buyback program from $15 billion to $25 billion, largest ever buyback for Baba. Overall, it's been a volatile year, though, for the stock and all the Chinese Internet stocks, which continue to face regulatory tightening from the Chinese government. Today's gains nearly wipe away Alibaba's losses for 2022, but not quite. The KWeb ETF, which tracks the entire group of Chinese Internet's up 8 percent or so as well. Mike, I mean, it's been a pretty big comeback. Hard, hard to call the bottom when you're when you're dealing with China. But there's also a report today from Reuters that China's regulators were asking some of these tech companies to beef up their auditing disclosures, which could be taken as a good news, good sign. 
when it comes to dealing with the U.S. What's your take? Yeah, I was going to say it's hard to call the bottom there, except when the Chinese authorities are working hard to send the message that they think a bottom should be put in here by, you know, having a different tone in their messaging to companies and investors. Uh, clearly, Alibaba, with this pretty aggressive buyback announcement, it amounts to about, you know, eight plus percent of the market cap over a couple of years. They might do this buyback uh, at a pretty discounted valuation. So it's, you know, pretty good in balance sheet terms how this means in capital allocation. It, it un- it's understandable why the stock would be up this way, but it also seems to come with the tacit uh, approval of, of Chinese authorities. So uh, probably more of a two-way market than it's been. It's, I, that's not a very controversial proposition, given that it's been straight down for a while right now. Uh, but it does absolutely seem as if uh, China does not want there to be this continued punitive tone about their companies and people who own capital uh, in these So basically, J.P. Morgan analysts marked the bottom when they called the stocks uninvestable. What, it, it's, <laughs> it's lining up that way at the moment anyway. Yeah, last week. All right, look at Tesla. Tesla shares at the top of the S&P 500 today. The company officially beginning deliveries at its Gigafactory in Germany. Tesla expects the plant to eventually produce up to half a million cars per year. Let's bring in Jed Dorsheimer, analyst at Canaccord Genuity. Jed, with Tesla up 8% right now, Talk about the financial implications. Does it hurt to drag on profitability in the near term? How, how are you looking at this new Gigafactory? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> thanks for having me, Sarah. So let's just take a step back for a second. I'm down here in Houston at this Power Electronics Conference, so the guts that go into these uh, Teslas. And I'm doing this interview on an iPhone. And when I focused on the uh, cell phones, most pundits said, you know, never imagined that I'd be able to do what I'm doing today with you here on an iPhone back in 2002. And so I think the context, uh, thank you very much. So I think the context of what Tesla is doing is we have to take, we have to look at it through the eyes of a manufacturing juggernaut that we have not seen since Henry Ford um, with assembly lines change and created the, the automotive industry that we know today. And so when we look at Austin and we look at, which is gonna be coming online in a couple of weeks, when we look at Berlin, which is gonna double their manufacturing. And we look at electrification as a bigger trend and the value that that brings to the market. I can't help but think that these are all positives with respect to Tesla. And it also reduces the geopolitical risk that we're now seeing increased Mm. tensions from Russia, Ukraine, and China uh, as well. Because what they they were using the, the Shanghai factory and shipping cars from China to Europe. Now they could theoretically now just supply them the, the European demand from the European factories, what, what sort of opportunity does that represent? Well, two things. You're exactly right. So first, over 50% of the cars that they're producing now are coming from Shanghai. So you're going to reduce the dependence on China is that central low-cost hub for where you're shipping. Two, imagine all the embodied energy that's actually attached to floating these cars on a ship all around the world um, and being able to regionalize and lo- uh, with local manufacturing. And lastly, these are going to be cars that are moving to the 4680. And a lot of people don't understand this. That's just the size of the battery. But it's really important because, in our view, it creates an Apple-esque type uh, strategy here, which opens up other markets, namely the markets that they haven't been doing much in, which is energy storage and battery backup. We haven't seen much, but they've said that they've been supply constrained on the 2170s And so this opens that market up for them. And we think that's going to be an area of growth to augment uh, the automotive growth that they're going to be more than double. 
That's what I was going to ask about, because all of the EV companies now, Jed, are supply constrained, are they not, with the, the price of the materials that go into batteries spiking and a lot of them stuck in Russia and Ukraine? Elon Musk has complained about this on Twitter. Where does Tesla stand relative to other EV competitors when it comes to dealing with these issues and potentially raising prices? Yeah, so Tesla's raised prices across the board. They're not going to be immune from the supply chain challenges. I don't think any companies are going to be immune. You're going to see that flow through. However, one of the things that Tesla has done really well is they've looked at a system uh, design, which other companies are starting to do, but Tesla's way out in front of the pack. So, for example, using silicon carbide for their inverter to get more out of the electrons that are going into the batteries, which allows you to get to a smaller battery pack or to, to reduce the amount of copper to lightweight the vehicle. Those are going to be things that are going to become more important. That's why I'm at this conference down here in Houston, listening to these semiconductor companies talking about what the plans are actually going to be. So I think near term, Tesla is not going to be immune to the supply chain challenges. We think that's going to create opportunities with the volatility to buy on pullbacks. But I think when we look longer term, it's clear to us that the trend towards electrification, which includes transportation as well as decentralized electrification on the generation for solar and battery backup are clear winners in terms of a much larger trend. So you're buying on the dips. Tesla's still down about 6% for the year. It's 20% off the highs, but it is surging right now and has a good, had, had a good month or so here. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in this market, uh, you know, we have a buy, we have a $1,200 price target, um, but recognize it's like the pilot coming on on the flight saying there's going to be turbulence. There's going to be a lot of choppiness. Our macro strategist, Tony Dwyer, has talked about that and actually has been uh, uh, proficient in calling a lot of these trends. We do think that uh, things are going to be bumpy, but we would be buyers on pullback because this is where the puck's going to be going. Jed Dorsheimer. Jed, thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. On Tesla, which is up right now about almost 8 percent. Financials among the leaders in today's rally, as well as Treasury yields continue to rise. While conventional wisdom says a yield curve inversion signals a recession, Bank of America says investors should buy financial stocks now that the three-year, 10-year yield curve has inverted. The firm says the traditional view no longer applies and that a yield curve inversion does not necessarily signal trouble for the banks, with the sector outperforming 50 percent of the time during yield curve inversions, which which does make you scratch your head a little bit, Mike. What do you think of the call? Yeah, I mean, the business model of banks is uh, is no longer what it used to be traditionally, principally, which was, you know, taking short term deposits, lending out 10 years or borrowing very short and lending out 10 years. Uh, the curves that matter more to bank uh, earnings are on the shorter end. Uh, so it, those are still relatively steep. And also just the absolute level of short term yields matters a lot for the deposit heavy bank. So that just means as the Fed hikes rates, it flows right through. So all those things uh, are, are true. And I think that the curve has inverted in, in recent cycles when we kind of gotten later in a cycle, but we've had long cycles. So, you know, it stays late for, for longer. And I think that's one of the reasons banks have continued to be OK. And valuations got reset a little bit. If you look at like a Bank of America, uh, it was basically at its uh, high end of its of its range for valuation before these little pullbacks. And it, you know, obviously got a little more in the target zone uh, for, for buyers. So it all makes sense to 
to me, uh, as we remember, everybody piled in. It was a stampede into banks and energy at the beginning of this year, and only energy has really given you a smooth ride. So we'll see if investors are going to be gun-shy in really uh, rushing back into financials after that. Well, it's certainly happening today with the rise in yields. Mike, it's a, it's a weird day because we're it seeing is. these yields spike, the two-year, the 10-year, really across the board, even though we're seeing some flattening. And equities are doing pretty nicely. We're coming off the highs, but we're still up 1% on the S&P. NASDAQ up 2%. You know, it makes financial conditions a little looser, which make Fed, Fed Chair Powell's job a little bit easier when it comes to tightening them. He has more of a green light to do it. I, I just wonder ultimately if it's the right if, if it's the right trade, what's going on right now, given the Fed chair is doubling and tripling down on this inflation fight. Yeah, it's not the cleanest read at all. And, and I think a, a lot of times what I would resort to in, in trying to figure out what's going on is, again, to go back to positioning and where we started from. Uh, you go back a week and there was absolutely rock bottom sentiment and uh, risk positioning. It's obviously gotten taken care of. People chasing this rally. We've been talking about the late day rallies every day. Well, guess what? That often means people feel underinvested, underexposed to a stock market that's not not letting them in. That can't in itself last for very long. Maybe it's actually running its course right now. But to me, that helps explain why the big index stocks, which are the big growth stocks, are playing catch up today, even as rates go up. Tesla, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook, all leading the triple Qs higher. We've got two minutes to go. What do you see in the internals? It's been positive, Sarah, but I wouldn't say overwhelmingly so. The equal weighted S&P is actually lagging the main index. And you see here, it's about, you know, two to one, two and a half to one advancing versus declining volume. In terms of the number of stocks, it's really not that overwhelmingly positive on the New York Stock Exchange. But we talked about uh, both tech and financials doing well. Look at it on a month-to-date basis. Software and financials, both in positive territory so far for uh, for March. Uh, and again, it's, that's a, a very similar-looking curve, and that hasn't been the case over the last year. Those groups had been more diverging uh, than moving together. The volatility index continues to cooperate. It's down another half point, so down under 23. Remember, we peaked in the high 30s uh, not that long ago. And that's a good, again, spike on the chart. You want within the next week or two, probably for this to recede below 20, to really have a sense that the market is on firmer footing and is back in gear, Sarah. As we head into the close, I'm just watching Nike, which has given up some of its earlier gains. It's up about two and a half percent after what was considered a very strong quarter from that company. Taking a look at the broad averages, the S&P is up one percent. What is working today? Consumer discretionary. Thank you, Tesla. Communication services, financials, technology. We've hit all the tech and banks themes. Energy is the only sector that's lower right now. Everybody else is higher. The Dow, best performer in the Dow or biggest point contributor would be Boeing after that slide yesterday on the Chinese plane crash. Nike, Salesforce, Apple, all adding to the Dow gains as well, as well as J.P. Morgan and some of the banks there. The Nasdaq, the biggest winner of all three, it's adding uh, well, about 2% here. The small caps also adding a percent or so. So that makes Five gains of the last six sessions for the major averages, building on last week's strongest rally since 2020, still down for the year, but a pretty strong day considering yields jumped. That does it for me on Closing Bell. Send it over to Scott Wapner in overtime. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, 
and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.